Father, I just want to pray tonight that, that you would touch our hearts, not just our intellects, not just our minds, but that you would touch our hearts with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, my title is Desiring the Presence. And we're going to start by looking at Psalm 27, verses 4 to 8. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says if you seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Um, as I've been preparing this this week, I have been so challenged, so challenged. You know that phrase that, um, that God comforts the uncomfortable and discomforts the comfortable? Well, I've been discomforted this week. <laughs> and so you might want to leave now if you don't want that to happen to you too. <laughs> because this is, I find this so challenging. Tonight is the first in a whole series about desiring the presence of God. And so... I, I found myself asking, how much do I genuinely desire more of God in my life? Now, I thought the answer was obvious. Of course, we all do. We, we wouldn't be here if we didn't. But the, the more I thought about this and the more I pushed into it, the more I realized how much that desire for more of God gets suppressed. And for the most part, if you're like me, we're not even aware that it's getting suppressed. I think Chris touched on that this morning when he talked about stuff kind of us blending in with the world around us rather than standing apart. And um, I came across this quote from a, an, a, a writer called John Piper who actually wrote a book called A Hunger for God. And I'm going to read what he said because I, I think it kind of sums up where I got to. He says this, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world, your soul is stuffed with the small things and there is no room for the great. And I kind of think that puts in a nutshell what happens. We, we nibble, we, we get full with the things of the world. And so, so there's a massive difference, isn't there, between thinking, well, yes, of course I want more of God, and that deep, heartfelt longing from the core of our being. They're, they're kind of two different things. I don't know if you've ever, any of you have ever been underwater for a long time, <laughs> where you kind of aware that time is ticking and you kind of, I think, oh, I'm under for longer than I expected. And the longer you're under the water, the more you long for a breath of air until that desire is the only thing you can think about. You cannot think about anything else other than the need to take a breath. 
and you rush to get to the surface as quickly as possible and no, there's nothing else in your head other than thinking, I need to breathe. And I think that's the kind of longing that we're talking about, actually. The longing that is so overwhelming that it pushes out all the other thoughts. And that's not the sort of longing that can be quenched by a few brief moments, by five minutes at the beginning of the day and five minutes at bedtime. It's not the sort of longing that can be quenched by coming to church on a Sunday and then just paying the odd few moments lip service. And I'm not suggesting that we do that, but I do think, if you're like me, and maybe it is just me, but my desire for more of the presence does get squeezed out by other things. But God wants us to long for him because it's in that longing that we are completely fulfilled and overwhelmed by God. And actually that's in that place, that's where we reflect Jesus in our lives. And actually is that not what we want to do to reflect Jesus and be Jesus to the world around us? And so the question that I found that I was asking myself and therefore I guess I'm asking all of us here is are we desperate or are we satisfied? Are we desperate or are we satisfied? I think most of you here, most of you know that I changed job in the summer. And I started <coughs> work for um, a mission organisation called Great Lakes Outreach at the beginning of September. And it's a mission organisation run by a guy called Simon Gilbo, who some of you might have heard of. Anyway, um, it's really challenged me because there are some days where it's as much as I can do not to sit in the office and weep when I read some of the testimonies that I'm hearing from guys in Burundi, from Burundian Christians who've experienced atrocities beyond our imaginings. I read the stories of some of these guys and it, I am literally, I am moved to tears. These are guys who often have absolutely nothing in terms of possessions and yet who can say exactly what David said in that psalm. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord because that's all that matters. That is all that matters. I heard, I heard recently a story of um, an outreach in the bush in Burundi and all these young Burundians walked a distance of 25 miles overnight to be able to attend a youth camp. Such was their desperation to encounter the presence of God. And they didn't care that they hadn't slept. They didn't care that their feet were blistered. And that was, I just thought, my goodness, that sort of hunger. Would I even think about doing that? And I'm, I know we are in a completely different setting, of course. But that's the sort of hunger that I'm referring to. And I think there are times when we won't even hop in the car and go to church on a Sunday morning because there's another option that's more appealing. Now, this doesn't, we are here. In a sense, we, this doesn't apply perhaps to those of us who are here tonight. But, you know, I think sometimes we think, oh, I'm too tired to go to church or I need to get the, the Sunday roast ready because the in-laws are coming so I can't go to church this morning. Do you know what I mean? It's those kind of... It's those kind of things. And I look round at Encounter some Sundays. This happened a fortnight ago. And I kind of go, where are God's people? 
Where are God's people? Where is the hunger? And that makes me want to cry too sometimes. Where is our desire for encounter with God? Why is our church not heaving? And I don't mean, why is it not heaving with the, the great and good of Cheshire boys, although of course that's what we long for, but why is it not heaving with God's people who are members? Where is everyone? Where is the hunger? And so that's the question, is it? What are the things are we allowing to fill us up and quench the real desire for the presence of God? I heard another story, again, from Burundi about an 80-year-old man, and he arrived at a refugee camp after six days of solid walking with literally nothing but the rags he was wearing and an empty bowl. And Simon spoke to him, and he said, you know, what's your story? And he said, well, my wife and my children were murdered by the rebels, and... I have absolutely nothing, he said, but I never knew Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. And that, that I, don't know, I don't know how to process that. It's unthinkable to me that someone who has literally nothing and has been through incredible trauma can still say, Jesus is enough. It's, it blows my mind. And that's why I've been discomforted this week, because I've been so challenged. I've been so, so challenged. And I know that stories like that are far removed from our experience. But I think in our affluent, comfortable Western culture, our senses get dulled and our hunger gets diminished because we almost have too much. Whether that's too much in terms of material stuff, whether that's too much in terms of things we're doing, whatever it is, I think we, it's like, it's like settling for a cheap burger and ignoring the fact that there's this incredible succulent steak on the menu. Apologies if you're vegetarians and that doesn't work for you, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it depends what it is <laughs> or where it is. <laughs> And I think for us, I think sometimes it takes some kind of crisis, doesn't it, to make us lean into God. Whether that's a, a breakdown in relationship or a bereavement or an illness or financial woes, whatever it is. I think it's in those times that we come and we truly embrace Jesus because then we suddenly are reminded of our desperate need for him. And it's those things that wake us up. And it's in those really tough circumstances that Jesus suddenly isn't an option He's an absolute necessity. We can't carry on without him. And I find myself wondering how people who don't know him manage when crisis hits. I, do, I really do. But the flip side of that is that when life is going fairly well, it's, it's, it's too easy to find some kind of false satisfaction in other things, you know? Whether it's food or alcohol or Facebook or retail therapy, we look to those things without even realising that we're doing it. I think that's the thing. It's not that we make a conscious choice to choose other things instead of Jesus, but we get dulled to our need. And, of course, that's the strategy of the enemy. He will do everything he can to make us feel satisfied with the things of this world. But the reality is our, our souls will never be satisfied 
with those things. We're designed only to be fulfilled by the Lord. And so, so my, my prayer for, for me and for all of us is that God will, will reawaken that heartfelt desire and longing and hunger for so much more, for so much more in all circumstances, whether we're in crisis or not. Because that's what God wants for us. Because he loves us. And so how, my, my question is, how can we practically do that? How can we push into this? How can we push into desiring more of God's presence? Come for the next few Sunday evenings and you'll hear more. But no, seriously, what, what can we do? Because I think the reality is that no one ever has less of God than they want. Because God will always, always meet with us. I think that's an enormously encouraging statement. I found a, I'm going to read you another quote. This is quite long, but I think it's worth reading. It's by um, the author A.W. Tozer, who many of you will have heard of. And he writes this. Are you sure you want to be possessed by a spirit who, while he is pure and gentle and wise and loving, will yet insist upon being Lord of your life? Are you sure you want one who will require obedience to the written word, who will not tolerate any of the self-sins in your life, self-love, self-indulgence, who will reserve the right to test and discipline you, who will strip away from you many loved objects which secretly harm your soul. Unless you can answer an eager yes to these questions, you do not want to be filled. If, on the other hand, your soul cries out for God, for the living God, and your dry and empty heart despairs of living a normal Christian life without a further anointing, then I ask you, is your desire all-absorbing? Is it the biggest thing in your life? Does it fill you with an acute longing that can only be described as the pain of desire? If your heart cries yes to these questions, you may be on your way to a spiritual breakthrough which will transform your whole life. It's strong stuff, isn't it? It's strong stuff. That's why I said I've been challenged this week. And I think, as I was looking at that, that one of the, the key phrases that jumped out of that is what Tozer describes as the self-sins. Because when I do an, an honest self-assessment of my spiritual state, what I see is it's, the, it's those things that hold me back. And I suspect that's probably true for a number of us. It's the self-sins that stop me being completely and unreservedly wholehearted. What do I mean by that? I mean things like self-focus. Spending too much time fretting about my anxieties and my worries, and I do that. Instead of allowing God to minister to me and carry the burdens for me. Self-protection is another one believing the lie that somehow we need to look after ourselves because maybe God won't come through instead of putting all our trust in God. Self-indulgence. All of these things are self-indulgent, really, but self-indulgence, putting ourselves first. Self-absorption, being more concerned about my needs and my wants and my struggles than about the needs of other people. Self-consciousness being too worried about other people's opinions of me? Am I being too radical? Am I being too fanatical? 
Am I making other people feel uncomfortable if I'm over the top in a worship time? All of these things, all of these things. Am I more concerned about blending in and not being seen to be too different? Am I too concerned about not upsetting the status quo? When I first became a Christian, after 18 years in church life and not knowing Jesus, <laughs> one of the first accusations that came at me from family was that I was being too fanatical. And that's tough, isn't it? Especially when you're, you know, you're just 18 and all the rest of it. I think now I would say, fab, <laughs> bring it on. But then it didn't. And I think we can still get caught up in, this, in the sins of self. We all do. And I've realized that if we are truly desperate in the way that I've described for the presence of the Lord, then those things won't matter so much. I remember once we were on a, a, a beach in France with our kids when they were all really little. And there was a moment of abject horror when I suddenly realized that one of them was missing. And he was only three. And in my absolute desperation to find him, I started yelling at the top of my voice, running around. And I didn't care two hoots what other people thought about this mad English woman. I, I, hadn't, I just didn't care at all. Because I was so frantic to be in the presence of my child again that those things just didn't matter. And I think sometimes... That's how God wants us to be, uninhibited in our desire for him, uninhibited in our desperation for his presence, so that we just don't care what other people think. Alex was fine, by the way. He just thought it would be fun to hide from us. <laughs> he knew where we were all along and was laughing at my frantic franticness. <laughs> but that's the kind of desperation that I'm talking about, that desperation. That means that nothing else matters. And so how do we deal with the stuff that gets in the way? I'm, I'm going I'm to come into land in a minute, but I'm going to finish with, with four really obvious, simple things, but I think it's worth spelling them out. And these are things which I think will help us to consciously pursue more of God's presence in our lives. And the first thing is to get our priorities in order to get our priorities in order. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, have we got Matthew 6, 33? You'll, you'll know these verses. These are verses that we will all know, I promise you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. What's our number one priority? Seeking first his kingdom, putting God first. Then in, in Colossians 3, Paul writes this, verses 1 and 2. It's the same thing, really. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Because the thing about priorities, priorities are actually a matter of the heart. Priorities come from our heart. 
Jesus, Jesus said to the crowds that if you're thirsty, come to me. Don't go elsewhere. Come to me. And when we set our hearts to seek after God, when we make him our first priority, when his presence becomes our greatest desire, then we'll be heading in the right direction. And so that's the first thing. And I need to do this as well. I need to identify what my priorities actually are. And I think, write them down. You know, actually put them, put pen to paper, because then we can start to see the stuff that might be getting in the way. I haven't done that yet. I'm going to, and I think it's going to be a list that will probably fill me with horror, because I think there will be a lot of things that get in the way. I think for me, one of the, the, one of the primary things is that I'm too busy. My life, I, I can allow my life to be too full. You know, that feeling when you've got so much to do that you decide to do all the things that seem urgent first and the things that are important get dropped down to the bottom because you're so tired at the end of the day that somehow time with God gets squeezed right out or into the dregs and, and you just give him five minutes before you fall asleep. How many times have I done that? The reality is that there are enough hours in the day to do the things we're supposed to be doing. The challenge is discerning what to lay down. I came across a really interesting definition, or an acronym perhaps I should say, for busy. I'd never heard this before, you might have heard it. B-U-S-Y, being under Satan's yoke. And I thought, ooh. <laughs> That's a little uncomfortable. Because <laughs> how often do I fly around from one place to the next? Or I just need to do this. Oh, I just need to do that. I just need to send this email. I'm too busy. It's not God's intention for us to be that busy. So we go through every day at breakneck pace. Priorities. Priorities. Because busyness robs us of relationship and intimacy. And when we put God first, those other things will fall into place and we will have time to do the things that are important. I quite like that, busy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it, but I do like it. <laughs> the second thing, and this is absolutely stating the obvious, pray. <laughs> Number two, pray. Because when we, when we pray, we are taking time to consciously enter the presence of God. And of course, we will grow in intimacy with him when we do that. In Luke 11, verse 9, again, very familiar verse, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Remember, no one has less of God than they want. That's so challenging. And God longs for us to spend time with him. It's a two-way thing. It's not one way, it's two-way. I love um, James chapter 4, verse 8. Have we got that one as well? Come near to God and he will come near to you. 
That's so beautiful. What a promise. Come near to God and he will come near to you. If our heart's real desire is for more of God, we will not be disappointed. Number three, number three, I've written, we need hearts of gratitude and humility. I think for a lot of us, pride gets in the way as well because it stops us admitting our need. So we need to walk in humility. Pride stops us running to God and depending on him and instead, instead of being thankful for all that God has given us, we continue to moan and complain. I do it. I do it myself. When stuff is tough or I'm struggling, I moan and complain. Where's my heart of gratitude? How can I expect to enter into God's presence when I'm full of negativity and moaning? Yes, Laurie, I'm listening. <laughs> but it's so, it's so tough because you've probably heard, Laurie, I've heard Laurie say this from the front. He said it many times. If God, even if God never did another single thing for us in this life on earth, he's already given us everything. Jesus laid down his life for us. And sometimes I'm ashamed at my lack of gratitude. Honestly. I'm ashamed of my focus on my problems. And I think sometimes we need to choose to change our perspective. It's a conscious choice. And lastly, and again, as I say, these are, these are th four obvious things. The last thing is surrender. Because if Jesus isn't Lord of everything, he's not really Lord. You can't say Lord if, if we haven't handed everything over, if we haven't surrendered everything. And so we need to be willing to embrace the cost following Jesus and we need to be willing to be challenged out of our comfort zone and none of us like that it's called a comfort zone for a reason it's because we're comfortable in it which is why I think as I've been preparing this this week God has been discomforting me a lot <laughs> because when I'm comfortable my hunger gets suppressed and there really isn't any other way So, I don't know about you, but I, I think I can honestly say, in my heart of hearts, I really don't want to settle for less than the best. And I, I'm sure that's true. You wouldn't be here if that wasn't true for you as well. We don't want to settle for a domesticated Jesus, as one writer put it. A domesticated Jesus. And I really want to recapture that desperation for more of the presence of God in my life. You hear sometimes people talk about your, recapturing your first love. That moment when you first meet Jesus. And I do want to be radically obedient. I do want to put Jesus first, knowing that I will get it wrong. Many, many more times. But I want to finish with the words of George Whitfield because I thought, yep, yeah, this is it. And he simply said, Lord, Help me begin to begin. Amen.